After Jesus had said this, he went ahead, going to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as it was told to them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's been written for us. And so tonight, as we turn to it, uh, we ask that you might point us towards your son and help us to see more of what he is like and why he is worthy of our lives. Amen. Okay, well, can you please make sure you have the handout open in front of you? You'll see on the right-hand side the passage there, and on the left, um, an outline. You'll notice there are blanks for you to fill in as we go along, and to make it easier, we've actually put pens in your seats for once, so that, that will make it hopefully easier for you. Um, you'll notice also on the bottom right that I'm going to finish tonight by asking you just to turn to the person next to you and talk about one of the issues that gets raised in this talk. Well, I wonder if you've ever watched a royal coronation ceremony, the arrival of a monarch to be installed on the throne. Now, if you ever have, you'll know that it's not rushed or hurried in any way. It's very stately and graceful. And every moment is laden with significance. That's what we're seeing in the passage that Sylvia just read for us. Jesus has finally reached Jerusalem. And over four profound episodes, the action is going to slow right down. I think super slow-mo, so we don't miss anything. Last week was all about how we live because Jesus changes everything. But this week, 
is more an invitation to come and delight in Jesus as we focus on his character and what he is like. Uh, That's why I've called this talk. You'll see on the top left, come and see the splendour of the King. And I hope and trust that this will be wonderful, whether you're a believer or not. Uh, Well, let's get into it. You'll see on the right-hand side, verse 28. After Jesus has said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus is almost at his final destination. He's been on the way to Jerusalem since way back in chapter 9. Uh, You'll see on screen behind me a graphic that will help you visualise what's going on. Jesus has been in the Judean countryside, and last week we saw him in Jericho where he met Zacchaeus. Uh, This week he's in the final stages as he comes to Bethany and Bethphage, and then the Mount of Olives, and then to Jerusalem itself. Uh, The reading was broken down into four distinct episodes, each offering a wonderful picture of what Jesus is like. So on the left there, point one, near Bethany and Bethphage. Now, I'm going to read verses 29 through 36, and then afterwards uh, I'm going to tell you what the blank is, but see if you can work out what's the picture of Jesus that we see in this passage. Pick it up in verse 29. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. Okay, what's the picture of Jesus? Well, here's the first blank for you to fill in. Jesus is well prepared. Jesus is well prepared. Really? Jeff, is that what you're going to come up with? I mean, it does feel like he's taken care of every little detail for his grand entry, doesn't it? But even so, well prepared? That just sounds a little bit ho-hum and mundane. Maybe as if I'm saying, Jesus is a good organiser or event planner. The thing is, I've gone for this because I want to dispel a common Christian myth. Namely, that this episode is an example of Jesus' supernatural power, of his prophetic foresight. See, often for Christians, I think we read verse 30, go to the village ahead of you, as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. I often think we get to verse 31, where it says, if anyone asks you why you're untying it, that when Jesus says, the Lord needs it, it's almost like one of those Jedi mind tricks, you know, the Lord needs it. And they'll just do whatever they say. Now, I kind of know why we'd like that, because it'd be confirmation that Jesus is God. But actually, the simpler explanation is better. Jesus has just made good preparations. He's made good preparations for his arrival, like you would for any coronation ceremony. The one detail in particular he's taken care of is his choice of transport. So until now, he's been on foot, walking from the Judean countryside, gathering a following. But for his grand entry into the capital, he's chosen, wait for it, a humble cult. A humble cult. Which is so interesting because it's so unexpected. This is no great stallion or fierce war horse 
or noble steed befitting a conquering king returning home. In fact, did you notice, it even has to be borrowed. It's not purchased outright. All of which goes to suggest that Jesus will be an unusual type of king. He's probably not going to be all grandiose and majestic, full of pomp, standing on ceremony, demanding a lo loyalty and allegiance from his subjects. In fact, there's an even greater significance to his choice of mount, beyond just self-effacing humility. In choosing a cult to enter Jerusalem, Jesus is deliberately invoking a 500-year-old prophecy to announce his arrival. Look on the left-hand side there from Zechariah 9, verse 9. Zechariah 9, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteousness and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, Jesus is well prepared. And with his well-planned attention to detail, he is in complete control of this situation. Jesus is unambiguously claiming that he is entering Jerusalem as that long-awaited king. Well, the initial response from the people who've gone out to greet him is actually quite positive. Now look at their warm welcome there in verse 36. They spread their cloaks on the road as a sign of homage, perhaps to cushion his ride. Just as his disciples, verse 35, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on top. Well, from the first episode, Jesus is well prepared. Second episode, come to the Mount of Olives. And again, I'll read the passage and then ask you, what's the picture of Jesus? Pick it up in verse 37 with me. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Okay, well, what's the picture of Jesus? Here's the second blank for you to fill in. Jesus is the Lord's king. Jesus is the Lord's king. You see, Jesus arrives for his coronation on the cult Zechariah prophesied the Lord's King of Jerusalem would enter and the initial reception is confirmation. Verse 37, the whole crowd of disciples quote Psalm 118 but with an explicit tweak to show they accept Jesus as King. Look at Psalm 118 on the left. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Look on the right, verse 38, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And in fact, you see in verse 38, they go on to quote Luke chapter 2. Uh, Luke 2 is where the angels cry out at the birth of the Messiah, again on the left, glory to God in the highest heaven on, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favour rests. On the right-hand side, verse 38, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And yet the unanswered question is, what will the people of Jerusalem do? How will they respond to the arrival of the Lord's King? After all, you remember last week, right? 
Last week, we heard Jesus tell the parable about the nobleman who goes away to be made king, but his subjects hated him so much they try to stop his coronation. What will the people of Jerusalem do now that their king has arrived? The thing is for us, because we've been following Jesus all the way since back in chapter 9, we're not very optimistic. Look at Luke 13, verse 33, on the left-hand side. This is Jesus speaking. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, stone those sent to you. How often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, as everyone here knows, Adelaide is known as the city of churches. Or, in Mad March, we are the festival city. According to Jesus, Jerusalem is known as the prophet-killing city. That doesn't bode well for Jesus as he rides in in explicit fulfilment of Zechariah's prophecy. Uh, Actually, it's no surprise that verse 39 zooms us in on some of the Pharisees in the crowd who are clearly offended by him because they understand the claim that Jesus is making about himself. And yet Jesus' response in verse 40 is that it is right for the Lord's king to be praised. Jesus says that even if his disciples keep quiet, the stones themselves will cry out in praise of Jesus. He is saying that even if his own people reject him, he will still be universally acclaimed. Because Jesus was praised by angels at his birth. Jesus is being praised by his disciples as he enters Jerusalem. And one day, Jesus will be praised in all eternity when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And on that day, the only question will be whether the nations of the world do so willingly and joyfully or as a final act of defiance. That's the reason why, in just a few minutes, we're going to be called to sing with one voice all creatures of our God and King. Lift up our voices and to him sing, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. Can I say that if you have ever doubted or suffered in your faith, and all of us have, or all of us will, or currently are in the midst of it, if you have ever doubted or suffered in your faith, this is the most wonderful comfort and assurance and relief. Jesus will be praised forever and ever, as he deserves. So on he goes. Although 
here's a sobering thought for you. The next time he is back at the Mount of Olives, it will be on the night of his death. So, to episode 3, near Jerusalem. Pick it up with me there in verse 41. I'm going to read it out and then ask again, what's the picture of Jesus? Verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. What's the picture of Jesus? The blank for you to fill in. Jesus is compassionate. Jesus is compassionate. You see, at long last, he's made it. He's made it to Jerusalem. And as he stands at the edge of the city, looking over it, you know, I imagine being up on Montefiore Hill, looking out at Adelaide, here is what he sees. Here is his inheritance, the kingdom he has come to inaugurate and to rule over. But tragically, it's not a moment for celebration. It's a time for bitter grief as, verse 41, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Why? Well, not because they will kill him like they did all the prophets before him, although they will. Jesus weeps because of what will happen to them. Because, verse 44, they have failed to recognise the time of God's coming to you. So, come back to verse 42, Jesus says, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. A couple of brief comments. Uh, firstly, Jesus speaks of this day in verse 42. This day is emphatic. Uh, it's meant to give the sense that what's taking place, it's happening right here, right now. Almost as if to say, can't you see what's going on? Now, I know we've seen a fair bit of scripture today, but this is important. So one last time, look on the left-hand side. Come with me back to Psalm 24. Psalm 24 describes what happens when God's king comes to Jerusalem. Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the king of glory. You see, the day of Jesus' arrival should have been one of the greatest days in Israel's history, ranking up there with other great days, like Moses receiving the Ten Commandments, or Joshua taking the people over the River Jordan into the Promised Land. Or King David himself bringing the ark home. Or Solomon dedicating the temple. That's what the day of Jesus' arrival should have been like. Instead, we find Jesus moved to tears. 
because his people cannot see what is going on. They cannot see what's on offer. What is on offer? Well, that's the other comment from verse 42. Jesus speaks of what would bring you peace. What would bring you peace? Now, to be really clear, in the Bible, the word peace means more than just peacefulness. It means more than quiet, reflective solitude or absence even of conflict. It is both those things, but it means more than that. The word peace in the Old Testament is the word you might have heard, shalom. and has a much bigger connotation. In fact, it has both horizontal and vertical dimensions. It speaks of good, harmonious relationships. That's the horizontal with each other. But more than that, it speaks of peace with God, of being reconciled to him. And that's what Jesus is bringing to Jerusalem on this day. But they cannot see it. It's a reminder, I think, of one of those great Christmas carols we sing. Hark, the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners finally reconciled. No wonder all this reduces Jesus to tears. What Jerusalem is missing out on this day. But actually worse than that is that they will go on to suffer the consequences of turning away the Lord's King when he knocks at their door, when he's waiting to be invited in. And that's what verses 43 and 44 are describing. They are describing what is clearly a graphic prophecy of what will happen to Jerusalem in AD 70. There's a picture on screen depicting Rome's total destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple itself. As an aside, this episode reminds us that Jesus is the key to interpreting history because he knows what's been promised and he knows what will come to pass. So as all this takes place, God's people rejecting their king and getting what they deserve, still, verse 41, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. It's an extraordinary contrast, isn't it? It's a contrast with the earlier pictures that we've seen of Jesus as being the well-prepared Lord's King. Of what we've seen throughout Luke's account, Jesus, he is the mighty Son of God through whom all things were made, visible and invisible, on earth and on, in heaven above. This is the one who calmed the wind and the waves, who fed the 5,000, who healed the sick, who even raised Lazarus from the dead. How comforting to know that this Jesus is compassionate and that he cares. Do you know that in the Bible there are only two times we're told that Jesus weeps? And it's never for himself. Actually, the other time is for Lazarus. Jesus weeps, but not for himself. In fact, he still proceeds forward, even knowing what they will do to him. Because 
the Son of Man didn't just come to seek and save the lost. He came even for those who would crucify him. Well, despite my best attempts each Sunday, we can't cover everything. So I want to talk about good Christian books. And you'll see on your leaflet there a reference to a book by Dane Ortland called Gentle and Lowly. Uh, this is the book here. Uh, I read it just uh, this uh, last couple of weeks. Um, it's a really good book that's just come out in recent times. Uh, what he tries to do in it is focus less on what Christ does and more on what Jesus is like. Uh, you might say he focuses on the person of Christ rather than the work of Christ. Now, I know at one level the distinction is somewhat artificial, but it's an interesting way to try and reflect on the very heart and character of Jesus. Listen to what he says. This is deeper than saying Jesus is loving or merciful or gracious. The cumulative testimony of the four Gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world about him, his deepest impulse his most natural instinct is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. So on he proceeds into Jerusalem. Uh, before we come to the final part, you'll notice underneath uh, that quote there, there's a reference to a website. People are always asking what are good books to read um, and what are good Christian books to read? As you know, there are more books than you could possibly read in your life. So I've given you a reference to a website that reviews good Christian books and tells you what they're about and helps you work out what are the ones that are going to be useful. Uh, I know it's a good website because my wife runs it. Um, she's the one who reads all the books and reviews them. And I know many of you are familiar with this anyway. But uh, you might find that useful if you want to pick up some things to keep growing and learning, uh, growing in your knowledge and love of God and what he is like. Okay, let's come to episode four then, and the final scene in the temple courts. Uh, so far we've seen that Jesus is well prepared, he's the Lord's king, he is compassionate. Let's come to the final picture, pick it up in verse 45. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a den of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet... They couldn't find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. What is Jesus like? Jesus is righteous. Last blank to fill in. Jesus is righteous. Now, so that we don't misinterpret Jesus' tears in the previous episode as a, as a sign of weakness or him even being in despair, this last episode reminds us that Jesus is righteous. Jesus abhors the corruption and profiteering which was destroying the worship of God. See, the temple is the place where God's people were meant to come to meet with him. It's the place where God dwelt amongst his people. It is at the very heart of a relationship with God in the Old Testament. We all know that from the last two years, right? To be in person with someone is immensely significant. So the temple for the Israelites and therefore, it's very little wonder that this is the first place that Jesus heads to on this day. And sadly, when he gets there, he finds gross abuse, an abuse that has debased a house of prayer and turned it into a den of robbers. 
And I'm not going to go into it in any detail or spend any time on the Old Testament quotes. You'll see the references there on the bottom left from Isaiah and Jeremiah. All we see today is Jesus as he begins the process of cleansing the temple and abolishing their failed religion and enabling all people everywhere to finally have a relationship with God. As an aside, uh, this passage reminds us that how can we worship God and who Jesus is uh, are actually the same question. Uh, To put it slightly differently, you cannot worship God without coming to Jesus. You cannot worship God without coming to Jesus and meeting with him. It's just not possible. All other roads don't lead to God. Only Jesus does. All other pathways will take you away from him. Well, this final episode reminds us that although Jesus is compassionate, uh, he weeps for Jerusalem, he is also righteous. Uh, And in fact, he is outraged by evil in his kingdom. Which deep down, of course, is what we all long for. We long for someone to hold the unjust to account. Just ask the people of Ukraine... And yet we finish today on a cliffhanger. Verses 47 and 48. What will happen when Jesus begins to teach about God? Which of course is what the temple should have been used for. Well the answer is come back next week. We're going to pick up with Jesus and his teaching. And the first topic of course is going to be religion and politics. Which will be entirely apt the week before an election. Let me conclude. Can I say what a relief it is to have met Jesus this day? You see, this is what Jesus is like. If he is well prepared so that no detail of our lives is beneath him. If he is the Lord's king, one who is born to rule. If he is compassionate so that he sees and cares for us. And if he is righteous so that he will right wrongs and bring about good. If Jesus is those things, then we can find rest and lasting peace in him. We can bring our cares and concerns to him and not have to try to fix them ourselves because it's not all up to us. Can I say that if you're here tonight as someone who's not a believer, I hope you can see that Jesus is the one who reveals what God is like and that he is worth meeting. And so perhaps can I invite you to consider coming along to one of our Explore courses that we run. These are ways in which we encourage those who would like to meet Jesus to have an opportunity to come and see what he is like and why he is worthy of your life. Uh, If that's something you'd like to do, come and chat with me or any of the staff afterwards or the person, the member of this church who brought you along. We'd love to see you uh, join us at one of those times. But at the same time, if you are a believer, and at this point I guess I'm speaking particularly to the members of this church, given what we've seen about what Jesus is like, well, don't you just want to know him better and love him more? You know, the way in which you do this is that you meet him in his word. 
Uh, that's what struck me personally this week as I've been preparing this talk. You know, every Sunday it's my privilege to be able to share with you some of the things that I have learnt, but to be really honest, you don't need me to do it for you. Just get on with reading it yourself. And perhaps you might consider joining one of our growth groups so that along with others, you might meet him together. But just as beneficial as talking about him with others, just as beneficial is talking about him with others and hearing what they have to say about what he is like. You know that actually from life. We learn so much from other people's testimony and experience. You learn about what I am like by talking to those who know me well. So I want to finish by encouraging you What's one thing you could share with one person in this week ahead about what Jesus is like for you? One thing with one person about what Jesus is like for you. And to do it for their encouragement, and I imagine at that point they reciprocate for your encouragement as well. You know, it could be a phone call, it might be over a cup of coffee, it might just be a text or an email. But what's one thing with one person that you could share with another about what Jesus is like and why he is worthy of our praise?